Welcome back to our series on the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. It's the Gospel of Luke. Actually, in the, in the Greek New Testament, it just says katalukan, which means according to Luke. Um, we have been systematically plodding along week by week, moving chapter by chapter to the climax of Jesus' ministry and his purpose and his goal, which, of course, is going to Jerusalem for the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension and ultimately, ultimately, the redemption of humankind, at least some of humanity. Uh, as I pointed out, the first week of this series, Luke can be divided into four sections. Not four equal parts, but four sections. There's the introduction of the Son of Man. There's the ministry of the Son of Man. And third, the rejection of the Son of Man. And then fourth, the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Son of Man. And of course, the first introductory one, it's the birth narratives in all of that. But the pivotal verse uh, that moved us from that second section, the ministry of the Son of Man, to the rejection of Son of Man, was chapter 9 of Luke, verse 51. If you remember, it's when it says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he resolutely set his face to Jerusalem. In the original Greek, it's actually set his face like flint, just determined to go to Jerusalem. And since that verse... We have been moving week by week, chapter by chapter, closer and closer to Jerusalem. And what goes down there, and we all know what goes down there, it's the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. And you may have noticed things are getting more and more intense the closer that Jesus gets to Jerusalem. The tensions between them... And the, between him and the religious elites, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the high priests, and all of them, is steadily rising, steadily rising. And we saw that last week also in chapter 12. You remember the section was, woe, woe to the Pharisees, and he straightens out their shorts. And then, woe to the uh, lawyers, and he straightens them out as well. Then he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, because the Pharisees are not what they seem to be. So it's getting kind of crazy. Jesus also warned us to be on guard against all kinds of greed. Be on guard against all forms of greed and also putting confidence in possessions and riches. And you remember the, the parable of the rich fool. Jesus reminds us that we are valuable to God, much more valuable than all of those sparrows and the ravens. You remember that? And that he will provide for us and what we need. He will provide for us. He says, seek first his kingdom, and all of those things will be. He knows what we need, and he will provide those things for us. But he wants us to seek his kingdom first. He doesn't want us running around seeking riches and running around worrying about this and worrying about that. He says, if we just do what he says to do and follow him, he will provide all of those things for us. They'll be added unto us. We closed last week with Jesus' directive to be ready and to be faithful. Ready for the second coming and faithful until he comes, right? Ready and faithful. He said, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. It was verse 40 last week. The last 10 verses of this chapter 12 are a warning to discern the times because his coming is near and it will not be a time of peace. Make no mistake. It won't be a time of peace. It's going to be a time of division. He says where father and son are divided and mother and father, lines are going to be crossed over what you believe and what you think about Jesus. There's going to be lines that are drawn in that. So be prepared for some tough times in the end 
times, in the end times. Be ready, be faithful, but be prepared. Be prepared because it's coming and we don't know when. We don't know. It might be today. We don't know. So today, chapter 13 of Luke opens on a very somber tone. Murder and tragedy. That's pretty somber, right? (laughs) It's pretty dark. Verse 1 of Luke 13 says, Now on the same occasion, there were some There were some present who reported to him about the Galileans, reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So certain people were there and they reported to Jesus about some horrendous things that Pilate had done to some some Galileans in the temple at Jerusalem. Apparently these Galileans were zealots of a sort, maybe part of an anti-Roman militia, and it's It appears that Pilate used the temple as a way to trap them and kill them when they came to offer sacrifice. That's pretty brutal. That's pretty brutal, right? It said that Pilate mixed or mingled their blood with the blood of their sacrifices that they brought to offer to God. Pretty rough. I researched that event, okay, and there was nothing in Josephus. You've heard me talk about Josephus, the historian, the Roman slash Jewish historian there was nothing in Josephus about that but there was a similar event there it was mentioned about some Samaritans that had been slaughtered by Pilate in their temple in Gerizim not in Jerusalem but in Gerizim but biblical scholars like Lightfoot Lightfoot don't think that that's what Luke is referring to here so we're really not sure about when and where that happened at least we can't find historical um, evidence of that but it happened anyway Jesus turns this discussion into a conversation about repentance, Dave, and the importance of repentance, because it's very important. It's a a, uh, cornerstone of Jesus' ministry. In this discussion, Jesus also mentions a tragic event that took place in Siloam. If you know in the Bible, it's a a holy place where uh, Jesus healed the blind man. He washed his eyes in the pool of Siloam. There, Jesus says that 18 people were killed when a tower collapsed. So it was a tragedy. It was a tragedy. So listen for that in verses 1 through 5. I'm going to go back to verse 1 and read it again through verse 5. It says, Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? It's a polemical question, and he answers it. He says, I tell you, no, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So repentance, pretty important. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower fell, on tower in Siloam fell, and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You will all likewise perish. So Jesus makes it clear that everyone needs to repent. Whether you consider yourself a good person or a wicked person, turning to God means repentance, means repentance. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia. Probably not familiar with that word, but another Greek word you are familiar with is metamorphosis, right? It means a change of form. Metanoia means a change of mind or a change in thinking. It means this is the way I'm living my life and this is the way I'm thinking what life is all about. It's stopping And it's turning around, and it's going in the opposite direction. 
That's repentance in a spiritual sense. Then Jesus tells a parable that illustrates the importance of repentance while at the same time, okay, revealing the patience and the forbearance of God. So listen to that in verses 6 through 9. It says, he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, which is his gardener, the person that takes care of his vineyard, he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this tree without finding any. He says, Cut it down. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? In other words, it's good for nothing. It's wastes of farmland. Just go ahead and get rid of it and cut it down. And he, that is the vineyard keeper, the vineyard keeper said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year also, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. Be great, right? But if not, cut it down. And we'll cut it down. So give it, give it a little more time. Give it another year. Give it another year. The vineyard keeper in that parable is symbolic of the forbearance and the patience of God. It's a symbol for that. God doesn't want to give up on us. He wants to give us another day. He wants to give us another week. He wants to give us more time to repent and turn to a true relationship with him. Forgiven, redeemed, and reconciled to him, brought back together. That's his goal and hope. But the last verse makes it clear that God will not wait forever. He says, God will not wait forever. The point, this point is expressed beautifully in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Peter is addressing questions about the last days and the second coming of Christ. Obviously by his answers, he's answering questions like, well, is Jesus coming back or not? Right? Why isn't he here yet? What's taking him so long? Is he coming back at all? So Peter, in this, these two verses, is, is obviously addressing questions like that to the Christians that he's writing to. So listen to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. It says this, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Did you hear that? He's not just dragging his feet. He's being patient. He's trying to give you another day. He's trying to give you more time to repent. So not wishing for anyone, he says, but being patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all, for all to come to repentance. It's an act of compassion and love and patience. And then he says this in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come. It will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. What a great expression of the forbearance of God. He's not slow. He's not distracted. He's not doing something else. He's patient. He's patient with us. Not wishing for any to perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish. But for all, all to come to repentance. That's what that parable is about. But he says, be sure of this. The Son of Man is coming. He's coming. And it will be at a time that you don't expect. It'll be a time that you don't expect. Uh, I remember, and this is just an aside, this is not in my, my um, sermon, but 
I remember last week seeing a person here who I know hasn't come to church very much, and they'd come a couple times and they weren't a Christian. And I was and 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 I I you know I was a little bit worried about that because this is some pretty rough stuff, isn't it? In in Luke, but this is all really true stuff. This is stuff that we all need to know. But I was worrying about them because they're not like some of you out there that I know who have been Christians for a long time, and you know what this is about. But I was worried about that. But these are things that need to be told. These are things that Jesus wants us to know in, in the Gospel of Luke. And it gets more intense, like I said, as he goes toward Jerusalem. The next eight verses is about Jesus and a woman and a healing on the Sabbath. Jesus, his regular practice was to teach in the synagogues every Sabbath. Okay, That's just what he did. It was his regular practice teaching uh, in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And there was a woman... When he was doing that, there was a woman with an unusual disorder that was, was caused by a spiritual entity. That's what the passage tells us. It says that she was bent double. It's the only place in the scripture I've ever seen that term used, was bent double. That's what it says. And I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure if it just means, you know, like 90 degrees, like bent over this way or with her head all the way down. I don't know. But it's not good, right? Either one of those is not good. But long story short, Jesus lays his hands on her and pronounces that she's healed. And guess what? She is. She's healed. She stands up straight. Listen, for the first time in 18 years, you talk about what a good feeling that must have been. (laughs) You know how you feel when your back's hurting and you stretch first thing in the morning, how good that feels. Imagine 18 years. And she stands up straight for the first time. I can't imagine what that must have been like for her. But everybody that was there, they're all amazed, they're all excited, except for one person, okay, and their buds, okay? It's the religious uptight dude, the synagogue official who's in charge, like everybody else. He's not excited about the healing, not at all, okay? The scripture says he's indignant. He's indignant. So he throws a bit of a fit, letting everyone know that healing on the Sabbath is not kosher, pun intended, okay? You're supposed to, that's supposed to be funny. Okay. Yeah. Healing on the Sabbath is not kosher. Okay? It's not allowed. It's just not done. And that's what he's telling everybody. That's what he's telling. Well, Jesus straightens him out real quick. Not like he straightened out the woman. You know, that's a little different. But he straightened out this guy's shorts, okay? And when he's done, this person and his other opponents, okay, are somewhat humiliated. That's what it says. Because of the undeniable logic and common sense in Jesus' words and his rationale. He just kind of takes them apart, I guess. But you're going to hear what he says here in just a minute. But this healing harkens back to chapter 6 that we covered, chapter 6, verse 5, where Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And he says in that instance, in chapter 6, he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You remember we went through that. He's Lord He's, he's has authority over disease, has authority over nature, has authority over even the Sabbath, even the Sabbath, which means he decides. He's the authority on what can and can't be done on the Sabbath because there was a book back then that the Pharisees used. It was called the Mishnah, okay, the Mishnah, and it, and it divided everything out. It wasn't just this one rule like in the Ten Commandments, but it says, okay, well, this is work, this is not work, this is work. This is not work, okay? But Jesus is saying, I'm the authority. I'm the one who decides that. Not you guys and not the Mishnah, okay? He makes that very clear in these nine verses. So listen to verses 10 through 17. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. 
And there was a woman who, was eight, who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again. She stood up and began glorifying God. Well, I should say so. 18 years? Oh, boy. I can't imagine. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, and it's kind of funny what he says. I mean, you could just almost hear the guy saying it. I, I, can't, I can't do it justice. He says, he says, there are six days in which work should be done. So come during those, come during those and get healed, but not on the Sabbath day, right? You can almost hear him saying it. But Jesus, the Lord answered and said to him, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. This guy's he's dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's, right? No compassion. He's not excited at all. Jesus says this, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath day untie his ox or his donkey from the stall? And lead him away to water, which, by the way, is legal in the Mishnah. And this woman, this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And that question is, of course she should. There's no better day than the Sabbath day for her to be released from those bonds. And he said this, he said this, when he said this, All his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things that were being done by him. So Jesus, again, through his undeniable logic and common sense, is saying this is how God feels about that. That's what he tells us. In this next section, we have two parables. The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of of the leaven. And both of them are about the kingdom of God. Both parables start with the same basic question. What is the kingdom of God like? What can we compare to the kingdom of God? How do you describe the kingdom of God? But before I get into that, I have a few fun facts about mustard seeds and mustard trees. Okay? And there's no extra charge, so don't worry. Don't worry about that. Don't go reaching. Oh, what's up? No, don't worry about it. No extra charge. Um, as you probably know, Okay, mustard seeds are very tiny, right? One to two millimeters. I brought this. Vicky and Cecil over there gave me, gave me a mustard seed. You might have seen this. It's hanging on my office door to remind me to, to have faith. That's why it's there, and it's going back there. But I brought it in there, and it's got a little mustard seed. It's about the size of a large flea. I'm sure you've never seen a large flea, but that's, that's about the size of it. And then, and then Charlene, Carlino over here, she... Uh, she brought me a mustard seed as well. She, she was doing her homework. You read ahead, didn't you, Charlene? She knew it was coming. And so this is the Congressional Medal of Faith right there So that we have. But mustard seeds are very small, okay, one to two millimeters. Yet when fully grown, the tree can be as tall as 30 feet high, which I grant you it's not a sequoia, not a redwood, not what we're used to, really tall trees. But in that part of the world, it's a big tree. But the magnificence of the mustard tree is not really in its height, but in how wide the branches can span out from the tree. The tree is as wide across as it is tall. It's quite impressive. 
It's quite impressive how the branches span out. It's usually about equal to its height in its width. So listen to what it says. It's a very big tree. Listen to what it says in verses 18 and 19. This is a very short parable, by the way. 18 and 19. So he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? That's what Jesus said, and then he answers. He said, it is like a mustard seed, which a man took and he threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. That tiny seed that he threw into his garden became a tree for others to come to and dwell in. The birds of the air. It became a place of dwelling. It reminds me of the words of Jesus. And he says, in my Father's house are many what? Dwelling places. If it were not so, and it's the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of God. And here the seeds is this tree, this teeny little seed that's the size of a large flea. Okay, Becomes this dwelling place and a blessing to the birds of the air. It became a dwelling for them. Okay, That's the parable of the mustard seed. Here comes the parable of the leaven, verses 20 and 21. It says, and again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which is yeast. You remember we talked about that last week, the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. It swells them up, right? We talked about that. It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour, a small amount of flour or meal, until it was all leavened. So what happened to that flour? Yeah, yeah. The three pecks of meal or flour became food and provision for many. It was very small, but it was expanded. It became bigger, and it became a blessing to others. The leaven multiplied the yield for many. With the mustard seed, the kingdom of God is like that. The kingdom of God is like that. With the leaven, the kingdom of God is like that. This very small something grows to something way more than you could ever imagine there was, and it becomes a blessing to many, a dwelling place, provision, and providing for food. The kingdom of God is like that. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, here's my own personal Pastor John parable. This is my parable. Okay, I made it up, and I'm going to tell it to you. There once was a man, uh, and someone, maybe many people, planted seeds of faith in his heart, and those seeds grew, and he became a follower of of Christ. And he spent much of his life spreading that good news and planting some of those same seeds of faith in the hearts of others. And his name, his name was Billy. You know who I'm talking about? Billy Graham. He's not the only reason, but Billy is one of the people who planted seeds of the good news of Jesus Christ in my heart so that the Holy Spirit could draw me to himself, could draw me into the kingdom of God. But guess what? Not just me, I'm just, you know, millions and millions of people became followers of Christ because of those small seeds that somewhere, maybe it was VBS, I don't know, got planted in the heart of Billy Graham. And the world was changed. Just, I'm just talking about one person. The kingdom of God is like that. That's what Jesus would say. The kingdom of God is like that. The next section is about the narrow way. The narrow way to the kingdom 
of God. Listen to verses 22 through 24. It says, And he was passing, that is, Jesus was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to where? That's what we talked about at the very beginning. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Set it like Flint. So he's proceeding on his way to Jerusalem, and that's what we're going to be doing for the rest of the series, right? And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. They will seek to enter but they will not be able. So right there, Jesus reveals that not everyone's going to make it. So it's not the salvation of all humankind, but a portion of humankind. Not everybody's going to make it. So some people will not turn to God, which is what it is. Repentance is turning to God and stopping life living like there is no God, repenting and turning to God. And so they will, they will not be accepted. Okay? They'll even be rejected. And not allowed into the kingdom, separate from God. He said, the way is narrow. Remember how patient, though, and forbearing God is? The way is narrow. And we know who the way is, don't we? Who's the way? Oh, there you go. It's the, it's the children's message answer. That's always the answer. You ask the kids, who did this? Jesus. You know. That's it. He's the way. Jesus is the way. And there is a parallel verse that's similar to this in Matthew 7 that speaks to the same issue. It actually comes right after the golden rule. How many of you all know the golden rule, right? Do unto others. Matthew 7, 12. This is verse 13 and 14 of chapter 7, right after the golden rule. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small. And the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. I would be remiss if I did not take the opportunity right now to point to the fact that Jesus said this in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. The narrow way, the narrow gate. He said, for the gate is small. The way is narrow that leads to life. Anybody can choose the way to destruction. That's a really wide category there, right? But he is the way. Jesus is the way. Trusting in him opens the gates of the kingdom of God to us. He opened the gates of the kingdom of God to me. We are part of the kingdom of God. Those seeds that were in Billy, those seeds are in you. And where will they go? Where will they grow? What will they do? It's going to grow. It's going to keep going. Trusting in him opens those doors for us. It is ours as a gift from God. It cannot be earned. You can't study enough to earn it or have enough money to pay for it. No, no. It's ours as a gift of grace, which grace means free gift, when we trust in him, who he is, and what he's done. That's it. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Listen, listen for that as I read. Verses 24 through 30. 24 through 30. Again, it says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek and seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, 
Open up to us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Verse in Matthew that similar just says, I do not know you. Okay? Then you will begin to say, well, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and you will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being removed, right, being thrown out. And they will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south, and they will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. In other words, there will be a lot of people there, and they're going to be from all over the world, Africa, Europe, the Far East, and here at the table of the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last, some, uh, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So what that means is some people think they're going to be a big deal in the kingdom of God, but they might end up being least in the kingdom of God. And some think that they maybe don't even deserve the kingdom of God. They're going to be very high on the list in the kingdom of God. Something else that that I thought about is that when we get to the kingdom of heaven, there might be some people there that you don't expect. Okay? And there might be some people that you think ought to be there, but they're not. Just saying. It has to do with repentance. The importance of repentance has to do with turning to God in the narrow way. In the narrow way, it's not about how good or bad you are. That's one of the beauties of the Christian faith. That's how I know I'm going to heaven. Because if it was dependent on me, oh my goodness, I'd be in trouble, right? I'd be in trouble. But it's not. It's dependent on the goodness of Jesus and his grace when I trust in him. Somebody say amen. Somebody say it. In closing, the last five verses of this chapter begins with something you do not often see in the scripture. And you really, you really don't see this very often. This might be the only place. I don't know. But some Pharisees are actually looking out for Jesus. You know that? They're looking out for Jesus. Okay? They're actually trying to protect him from harm. Usually, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. But the scripture in other places does tell us that there were some Pharisees that followed Jesus. They were followers of Jesus. One of those we know about, does anybody know? Nicodemus and John chapter 3, he says, Jesus said, you must be born again. That was Nicodemus. And he came to Jesus at night because he was a sort of a secret follower of Jesus. But Nicodemus was a Pharisee. So here we see the Pharisees reaching out to protect Jesus. And we have evidence of that right here in verse 31 and 32. So let me read it for you. It said, just at that time, some Pharisees approached him, Jesus, saying to him, go away. Leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. So they're warning him, you better get out of here. Usually they're, they're, you know, trying to get him to say something to get him in trouble. But here they're, they're protecting him. And he, Jesus, said to them, Allie, our children's director, she laughed when I read this to her this week, says, and he said to them, go tell that fox. Talking about Herod, like that sly fox, right? This is Jesus. He says, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I reach my goal. Remember, talked about his purpose and his goal, which is what? Part of it's the resurrection. So he's foreshadowing the resurrection, but he's not saying three days from now. And we see that in the next verse. He says, nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day. For it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Because he talks about how Jerusalem 
so many prophets were persecuted and died there. And he's talking about himself, again, foreshadowing his crucifixion. They would perish. Shouldn't pa- I should not perish outside of Jerusalem, and that's where he will perish. Okay, But not yet. His time is coming. And then he laments over Jerusalem in these last two verses. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children under uh, together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Get ready. He's foreshadowing another time. Here it comes. And I say to you, you, he's talking to Jerusalem, metaphorically, you, Jerusalem, will not see me until the time comes when you will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What's that? Palm Sunday, right. Palm Sunday. That's what it is. Jesus is talking about his triumphal entry into Jerusalem where he comes in and they say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They give him the welcome of, a ro- of royalty and a king. But just four days later, he's preparing for what? His crucifixion. And then he has his resurrection. And then the post-resurrection appearances and his ascension. He says, Jerusalem, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he tells those Pharisees, you just go. Go and tell Herod, that sly fox, that wily coyote, that wascoey wascal. Oh, you what? Who's that? Elmer Fudd, right? Wascoey wascal. You go tell him. I'll be back. He'll get his chance. You tell him. I'll be back. Because Jesus is headed for where? And his face is set like flint to go. He's determined to accomplish the mission, which is the salvation, the redemption of humanity. As we continue to roll through Luke week by week, Jesus gets closer and closer to Jerusalem. And we know that his suffering, his passion happens there. And so right now what I would like us to do is just sit in silence for a moment as we prepare because we're going to remember that time in communion right now. So if you would, just have a moment of silence. Just think about that and I'm going to pray. And then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together and close in a song. Just bow in remembrance. Lord, we thank you for this time of sacrament, this time of remembrance, this time of thanksgiving. To remember your journey, your mission, your goal to save us. Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart, um, if, we're not, if we've not already done this, that you would give us a heart to turn to you, a heart to repent and, and to move in your direction and live for you and, and trust in you, that we would repent and, and turn to you. I thank you for these elements that by faith become for us, by faith, your, your body and your blood. I thank you for what they represent, that you were broken willingly. When you went to Jerusalem on that day and they said, blessed, blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. What always amazes me, Lord, is you knew exactly what was going to happen. <laughs> you knew exactly what was going to happen and you went 
anyway. You went anyway because it was that important. And you did it for us. You did it for me. You did it for Billy. You did it for all of humanity. Because of your compassion, because of your forbearance, and your patience, Lord. You've not returned yet, but you will return. We don't know when. Help us to be ready. Help us to be faithful in the meantime and prepared. So, Lord, I pray for your blessing as we celebrate this sacrament in remembrance of you.